Hey, what's going on, Refi Nation? I am so excited to bring one of the last episodes of season two here with my good friend Simmer and Sep Komfar from Cello. Simmer, I know you are friends with Sep outside of the day-to-day workspace, and it seems like I learn something new about this guy every day. I don't even know how he's managed to do everything that he's done. He's just such a beautiful presence and human being. He's incredibly accomplished. You know, he started a company, sold it to Google, you know, was at the MIT Media Lab, started a network of preschools called Wildflower, you know, is the founder of Cello and Mosaic. And he, I would say, like, ever since I've, you know, known him back in 2015, like, he's someone who has embodied the spirit of what it looks like to be creating and moving into a more beautiful world. You know, I think he's someone who holds that vision so deep in his heart and mm. manifests it through all of his actions. So it is a such a gift to be with him and i think if if you really just even just listen to his words and how he says them you notice there's a softness and a tenderness and a way of holding something so beautiful that is just inspiring i think this is a beautiful time with a very beautiful and extraordinary human being that we get to mm-hmm. all just really enjoy being in the presence of totally yeah and it was just so interesting that you know we had an hour slot with him He kind of laid out what he wanted to talk about beforehand, touching on his story a little bit, some of the kind of core ideas going into, yeah, this story of money, um, the role of blockchain, this kind of ecology of money, this expression of creativity that's enabled through these new tools and some of the key primitives that can unlock a more prosperous, beautiful, regenerative future. Um, so there's both high level kind of mental model, there's a vision here and there's some specific building blocks to, you know, anyone out there in the world who sees problems in their local environment, the tools are here, you know, the time is now and there's some incredible technology available to build. Um, so yeah, here we go. Dropping the episode with Sep. It's been fun, Simmer. Steph, I, I remember the very first time we met, and I think this was back in uh, 2015, when Pedrin and Mar were hosting an LP summit, and you came up and you were talking about how technology could be beautiful. And you were talking about some of your own experience with Wildflower and preschools and some of you know, your past startup experience and some of the things that you were even seeing at the MIT Media Lab. And I remember being so struck by how beautiful you could see technology in its role in creating stories in bringing people together and coming back to the essence of what life really is. And I think for all of us listening, you know, I'd love to just maybe even start by asking, how did you come to see the world in the way that you do? Was this something that had always been true? Were there places or stories of inspiration that, that sort of like fostered that? How did you come to see the world in the way that you do? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and as I recall, uh, during that talk, I, I talked about two things. I talked to a couple of projects that I'd worked on. One was an art piece that I did called We Feel Fine. Um, and another was a, a, um, a network of schools that I had helped to start called Wildflower Montessori Schools. Um, and I think kind of talking about those in, in the concrete can actually... Um, allow me to talk about 
what specifically it is that I'd see the, the way that I see the world, basically. Uh, so I'll go from the concrete to the abstract here. Both of these projects look very different on the surface, but they end up having really a strong core uh, underlying philosophy to both of them. Um, so We Feel Fine was an art project that I did with my close friend, Jonathan Harris. And uh, we did this in 2005. Um, at the time, blogs per, blogs were, were getting big. And, um, and at the time, the blogs were different than your kinds of blogs today. They were almost like diaries for the most part. Like, um, and it was remarkable. I remember I had started kind of diving into them because I was interested, I was working at Google at the time and I was interested in how to think about search in the context of blogs. Um, and what I found was I found these just profoundly human uh, uh, expressions. And so I had written a little script that took all the sentences that start with I feel or I am feeling um, from continuously crawling blogs and taking those sentences, basically. And at the beginning, I just scrolled them across the screen. And uh, the sentences alone were remarkable. Um, and uh, so Jonathan and I worked for the next nine months on doing visualizations of people's feelings in real time. What we had hit upon were that those feeling sentences were... Um, were kind of like silhouettes. Um, and what I mean by that is like, uh, like one thing that I like about silhouettes or even cropped images is that when an, an image or a silhouette is missing something, you can project yourself onto it. Um, and so the feeling sentences had the same impact. Um, people saw them and then were able to do two things at the same time, project themselves onto it and have some sense of self-reflection, but also see them as somebody else's feelings and have a sense of empathy. Um, and so it reified these, um, both our, our own uh, individuality and our existence as part of something that's greater than ourselves. Um, so that's kind of, we feel fine. Um, Wildflower, I started because uh, I was thinking about preschools for my son at the time, who was two. And um, I was really struck by the Montessori method. I felt like the children were so peaceful, so uh, independent, so interdependent. Um, there was a special quality to the classroom. And what I understood from that uh, what I understood from observing a number of Montessori classrooms is that basically kind of it honored this truth. It allowed the children to have their, to follow their own path, um, but to follow their own path in the context of a supportive mixed age community. Um, and so it, so once mm -hmm. again, like there was that individuality and interconnectedness that was woven in um, to to, to, to Montessori. And what I had also seen was um, that the Montessori schools that I had observed, they had that for the children, but for the adults, for the teachers, um, there was still kind of like a, a, a very strong hierarchy. Of, um, 
And so what I, what I had wanted is to have the adults have that same experience, to be able to have that individuality and interdependence. Um, and so, so I've worked on creating a model where um, teachers, well, there would be single classroom schools in shop fronts. The teachers would be the heads of schools, so they could shape the school as they wished but that they would exist in a context, in a network of other similar shopfront teacher-led schools who would all support one another and, and learn together and, and learn from one another. Um, and so I think those two, those two are very different projects, um, but they kind of, they had the same, they had the same spirit underlying them. And this reminds me a lot of the kind of opening talk you gave at Solo Connect around mycelium, is that kind of like the same idea continued? Like, has it evolved from that point? Yeah, so the the story that I gave about mycelium is it's a great one. I, I, I was reading this book called um, The Hidden Life of Trees, and it talked about mycelial networks, where which we know above ground to be mushrooms. Um, but underground, there's thousands of miles of mycelial network in every square foot of forest. And when you look at a mycelial network under a microscope, it looks like a nervous system. Um, in fact, I'd argue that it is a nervous system. It's a biological network that passes messages and performs computations. Um, mm -hmm. And when you think about a forest having a nervous system, it changes the way you see everything. Um, I mean, for one, in a world where we know that our own intelligence arises from the, the complexity of our own neural networks. What does that say about the intelligence of a forest whose, whose neural networks are much richer than ours? And the only conclusion that I can come to is forests are intelligent and they are intelligent in ways that we do not yet understand in the same way that it's difficult for a mouse to understand a human's intelligence. Um, the second question <laughs> <love> that... that. <laughs> Um, the second, the second question that it brings up is like, if a forest has a nervous system, what is the organism? Is it the forest or is it the tree? And the only conclusion that I can come to is that we are at every level from cell all the way to earth. We are both ecosystem and organism. We are both a whole and a part. Um, and, you know, the, the, uh, the science fiction writer Arthur Kessler had a word for this. He called them holons, um, which is something that is simultaneously a whole and a part. And he said the universe is composed of interlocking holons. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think kind of that story gave form to what I had felt before, but I actually did not, one does not need to know about holons or mycelial networks in order to feel the truth of it. I feel like a whole. Um, and at the same time, I feel like a part of something greater than myself. Um, and as a whole, I need agency. And as a part, I need communion. Uh, as a whole, I have a unique purpose. And as a part, I'm connected to all things. Um, and that, I mean, when we talk about it in the context of, uh, uh, when we think about it in the context of traditional economic theory that posits that we are all uh, selfish, competing agents, individual agents. It's a very different starting point 
um, to, to, to think about the systems that one might, one might imagine. Yeah. Sip, you also wrote Syntax and Sage. And I remember when our dear friend Jennifer was, was sharing that book, I thought it was so beautiful to be approaching technology from a different set of design principles. Like how do we approach society from a different set of principles and what are the, what are the emergent properties and the systems that come from that place? You know, I, I know back in, this was, you know, when we were having some of this, this conversation back in 2018, you were just on the precipice of starting, I think just like getting cello off the ground. And maybe you could even share a little bit more about how, you know, we're talking about some of these sort of core principles, how that then led you both to, you know, both to blockchain and and maybe some of the purpose that that could serve in service of these networks. And maybe even sharing beyond that, some of the visions that you see and feel into around what's possible for our society when we come together in this way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let me start by kind of um, speaking to your question on story. Like, I think story is inextricably related to technology. Um, technology reifies a story. Um, I, I, Bob Dylan has this wonderful quote where he says, uh, um, a song is a poem with wings. Um, and I think a technology is a story with wings. Um, uh, and if it's not explicit, then it is implicit, like technology reifies an implicit story. Um, and typically it reifies a story that um, the, the dominant story, basically, you know, if it's not explicit. So I think it's very important kind of in designing um, any technology to kind of be explicit about the story. And, and especially this is true when um, designing and enabling technology where there's a community that will build on top of it is to be as explicit as you can about the story that you wish to see in the world. Um, it, doing so will attract the, the kinds of builders that resonate with that story. And it is much more likely that the technology will uh, put into place the story that you want to see in the world rather than the story that you don't. Um, and I think for what it's worth, I think um, in, in blockchain, we could use more of that basically. Um, so that's, um, I think the first. I think the second is, um, I want to kind of talk about the potential, the like, the way I view a certain enabling technologies, and I want to kind of talk about it with a, a story that I tell about paint. So, in the mid eighteen hundreds, there were a, a couple of inventions around paint. Uh, the, there was both the portable paint tube. Um, which uh, the, pa the patent was written, I think, in like 1856. Um, um, and there was also the, um, the th there were three actually, the collapsible easel and um, the metal ferrule. Uh, and the ferrule, fer the metal ferrule is, uh, uh, the ferrule is the part between the handle of the brush and the brush itself on a paintbrush. And before there were metal ferrules, they were, they were made out of wire or thread. And so you could only have round paintbrushes. But with metal ferrules, you could have flat paintbrushes. Um, so the combination of these three inventions is, did a couple things. One is it allowed people to go paint outside rather than in the studio, because you used to have 
you used to store your paint in pig bladders. And so you couldn't take like 20 pig bladders outside, basically, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and second, it enabled a style of painting called the impasto effect, where you could dab, the, the metal ferrule allowed you to dab, um, and flat paintbrush allowed you to quickly dab on the canvas. And those two things, from those two things, emerged a style of painting that we now know as Impressionism. Um, and it's remarkable that such beauty could emerge from like a couple of pedestrian enabling technologies. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that is the story of technology generally. What happens is uh, the technology expands the expressive range that is possible with a given communication medium, basically, you know? And once that expressive range is expanded, there are places in that expressive range that are really beautiful um, and that emerge if there's the the right story and the right set of people who, who bring that to life. Um, so that's kind of my metaphor for technology. Are there any kind of mental models that you have around like blockchain in particular and how you see that? I feel as though these are quite interesting like framing constructs, but yeah. you know, as, as you're looking at this framing, how do you see that tech in particular? Um, I will make an argument that the blockchain is very similar to the metal ferrule and the paint tube, um, but I'll do it as follows. I'll, I'll start by saying like, the way that I see blockchain is, is as a database without a database admin. Um, and that's a really, it's, it's succinct, but it's very powerful. I mean, and the way that I, I kind of analogize that is the internet was a, a network without a network admin. Networks existed before the internet and they were powerful. Mm. And But in that one detail of not having a network admin, it changed everything. Because what happened is people were like, well, like, I'm not going to make a website for an intranet because, well, the network admin might start charging access fees for that intranet or they may like decide to take my website down you know whereas people would make websites for the internet because that couldn't happen because there was no network admin to do that um, and so that led to and then what happened lots of people started creating websites people started creating browsers all sorts of technologies there was a cambrian explosion of possibilities simply because there was not a network admin um, and I think databases exist right now and they're powerful, but all databases have a database admin. Um, and database admins can and do things like say, well, you know, I'm going to choose to charge a 20% tax on any, any change in this ledger, basically, you know, that dissuades building in a way that we don't really understand in the same way that we didn't understand how um, network admins were dissuading the build the building of things before the internet. Um, so so, and that has huge amounts of implications. Um, I mean, one of the implications that I'm interested in is money, um, but it has implications far far beyond money. One of the things that I think is really beautiful. It's almost as if. Um like blockchains create this this form of stored memory that everybody can tap into that allows for right when you layer that on top of something like the internet right this sort of like connective tissue that 
maybe embody is actually very similar to a mycelium network. Like, you know, what does that look mm-hmm. like at a collective level to be stepping into that sort of a frame? You know, well, this is what something like blockchain allows, right? Is that sort of that creative um, frame around value in leveraging open databases to record um, mm. and share knowledge between members of the of the entire network. Yeah, I mean, you know, absolutely. I think, um, and that's where the analogy to the metal ferrule comes in, um, is basically what that does is it expands the expressive range. And it expands, and, and let me talk about this in the context of money, because this is something I... Um, I think this is particularly interesting in this context, but basically kind of like one use of an open database um, is to create different kinds of money, basically, you know? Money is one of these things where um, if some company said, hey, like I'm going to create a token for my game, basically, um, it's unlikely that it will, um, that game token would actually kind of end up forming a kind of money outside of the use of that game because it is completely controlled by the database admin of that company, basically, you know? And so, so it's hard to trust. You have to have a lot of trust in that game company in order to kind of have it circulate as money. Um, with an open database, um, I mean, and and Bitcoin is one example of this, is that that can circulate as a medium of exchange because people don't have to trust the Bitcoin administrator because there is no Bitcoin administrator. It is it is code that one could look at and audit. Um, so that's that's one piece. But so it allows for kind of the creation of new kinds of money. And this is where kind of... Um, story and the impressionists come in is like, what are we going to do with that expressive range, basically, you know? Um, and that I think is a v- super interesting, that's a super interesting question that I, I have a whole bunch of thoughts on. Yeah, I would love to go into that because I think, you know, we're just really starting to glimpse the wide range of experimentation, both on the short-lived and not so fruitful and not very well considered, um, not much depth to the story, to the, these are rooted in the most pressing challenges and in the deepest expressions of what it means to be human. So could you lay out a little bit of like the landscape of the vision for money that you see and what you've been inspired by in particular, and yeah, maybe touch on it as much as you want in terms of how it's relevant at Cello. But yeah, I'm just curious to kind of see what that vision looks like. Yeah, totally. I mean, my vision here is very inspired by uh, the philosopher Charles Eisenstein. Um, he wrote a, he's amazing. And he wrote a book called Sacred Economics, which is one of the more beautiful books on money that I've ever read. I mean, in this conversation, the blockchain generally reminds us that money is just a technology. Um, but of course, money has always been a technology. It's just that its features haven't really changed in the past 350 years. Um, but as a technology, its features can change. Um, and so what are the features of money that would lead to a more prosperous, a more a regenerative, a more beautiful world, basically? Um, and Charles posits five. Uh, the first is a universal basic income um, that's baked into the money system directly, um, not 
um, like built on top of the money system as an extra uh, as an external governmental reality. The second is this idea called demurrage, which is an idea by Silvio Gazelle, who he was an economist active in the late 1800s and early 1900s. And he observed that whenever there's a recession, people tend to hoard money and the hoarding of money intensifies the recession. And so he was like, how do we get out of this trap? Um, and so he said, well, uh, you know, why don't we have a small fee on the holding of money? Um, and that incentivizes the circulation of money. Um, and there was this beautiful experiment uh, in Vorgel, Austria, during the Great Depression, where the, the city of Vorgel instituted its own demerge-charged local currency. And Vorgel became an oasis of prosperity in the midst of the Great Depression. People called it the miracle of Vorgel. Um, and, uh, um, and basically kind of like that, I think, that's that's the second feature. And I see these two, UBI and Demerage, as two sides of the same coin. It's like the water cycle. Like UBI is like rain. Um, it ensures universal access. And Demerage is like, uh, like evaporation. It ensures non-stagnation. The third feature is, um, I mean, the way that I describe it, uh, well, I, it, so Charles called this natural capital-backed currencies. And he said, you know, whatever backs money, people make more of. Um, when gold backed money, there was this intense incentive to mine gold um, because you're like printing money. Um, similarly, in ancient cultures where cattle backed money, you would see an overproduction of cattle. Um, and so he's like, well, why don't we back money with things that we like, that we want to see more of in the world, like pristine forest or clean river? Um, and that's a powerful idea. So that's the third feature. Um, the fourth feature is... Um, I mean, I remember when, uh, as the internet was was becoming popular, people were like, whoa, you, you could imagine putting the whole encyclopedia on the internet. Um, and this was true, but it underestimated the true potentiality of the internet, which is that the encyclopedia would be a part of a much richer uh, information ecology that included the encyclopedia, uh, funny cat videos, blogs about the law, all kinds of stuff, you know? Um, and, and, and so when, when Bitcoin was, was first getting popular, people were like, oh, Bitcoin could replace fiat. And with, with the hindsight of having seen the internet, I was like, no, like Bitcoin hmm. won't replace fiat. Bitcoin will be important and fiat will go on chain and continue to be important. And both of those would be part of a much richer ecology of value that includes local currencies, regional currencies, functional currencies, store of value currencies, medium of exchange currencies, all filling their niche and interoperating in, a, in an ecosystem of value. That fourth one I'll just call community currencies, basically, just to keep it succinct. Um, and then the fifth one is the ability to create new money in a way without um, creating new debt. So right now, all money is created through interest-bearing debt. As a consequence, we always have more debt than we have money. We can never repay our debts. Um, um, and I, I'd say that has actually pretty big psychic consequences. Um, I mean, uh, one, and, and by the way, at the beginning of the industrial age, when the system, as the system was being intru introduced, 
it incentivized growth and that growth has been good for us. We've grown our way out of a lot of our problems. But now that the growth, now that we're reaching the carrying capacity of our planet, it's not clear that we can grow our way out of our current problems. Um, and basically kind of like uh, at carrying capacity, basically there's two options. One is growth through the, the kind of the, the conversion of, of natural resources to money. And the second is default. And if we took a, take a look at two of our biggest problems in our planet today, which is pollution and inequality, um, like I'd say those both um, derive from a system that requires growth or default in a planet whose carrying capacity has, ex uh, has been exceeded. So those are the five features that I'd say are, are kind of underpin a vision of money that, um, that correlates with what I talked about, the mycelium story that I talked about at the beginning, that honors our independence and our independence, our inter independence and our interdependence, our individuality and our communion. You know, one of the things that I think is really beautiful is that we've got such a vibrant community in refi of people who are thinking about and moving in this space, realizing and creating this exact, you know, many of the tenets of this exact vision. And so what would you want as people are closing out this year to be thinking about or sitting with as we head into 2023 and start to build a more regenerative financial system? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think what that question kind of speaks to is like, that vision is the, that vision of money is high level enough and abstract enough that it doesn't give enough guidance necessarily as to like, well, what should we do now? You know, and it's a silhouette. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. And almost, um, and, and, and kind of the, a, a natural kind of inclination for that is to say, okay, like I am going to make a money that has those features basically. And I think that's the wrong way to go about it. Um, and the reason why I think that's the wrong way to go about it is because it is complex enough. Um, and that the, my view is that the only way to kind of get to a vision of like that, like that is through a process of ecological succession is to kind of, and by ecological succession, I mean, you know, if you have a damaged field, like the first crop that um, that that naturally populates the field are the pioneer species. They're the weeds and the wildflowers. And the weeds and the wildflowers fix the soil with nitrogen that then allows for bushes and brush to, uh, to grow. And those bushes and brush then create ecological niches for other flora and fauna. And it is through that process of every stage creating the environment, the possibility for the next stage, that a, a force comes into being. Um, and so I think we here we're at the early stages of ecological succession for a vision like that. Um, and I think to me, it's reasonably clear what are some primitives that are needed at this stage of ecological succession. And I'll just name three. Um, I think uh, number one is... Uh, um, is universal basic income experiments basically on, on chain. Um, number two is community currencies that are, um, 
that are implemented as vouchers, basically. So community currencies that are backed by the local grocery store or food forest um, uh, or uh, like ser services of the community, basically. Um, and three is uh, carbon credits on chain. Um, those three things, and by the way, like those are all like, the way that I describe them is they're, they're very concrete things, even offline. So I would call them vouchers, receipts, and coupons, basically. You know, we're talking about on-chain vouchers, receipts, and coupons for, for these kinds of things. Um, and so I want to kind of close with one story about this town called Curitiba um, in Brazil and an experiment that they did in the 90s uh, and kind of have that show how... Um, these primitives, what these primitives could lead to. Um, and so Curitiba in the 90s, the mayor, uh, there, there was a garbage problem in the favelas. The, the favelas, the roads were too narrow for the garbage trucks to, to pass through. So garbage would collect in the favelas. And at the same time, there was an underused bus service. Um, and so the mayor started giving out bus tokens to people who would clean up garbage. So in, in exchange for garbage. Um, so it was like a receipt for garbage collection, <laughs> proof of proof of collection, so to speak. That's so um, good. And uh, the, um, the, the carbon credits, I mean, no, I'm sorry, the, the bus tokens, <laughs> people would start using the bus to go downtown to work. But after a certain period of time, those bus tokens started um, circulating as currency in the favelas. Um, and that allowed people to collect much more garbage than they needed for bus transport, basically. Um, and so that is a super interesting example of a complementary currency. It, it sat alongside the Hei that was earned into existence through environmental remediation. Um, and it was backed by public transportation. Um, and you can imagine lots and lots of these things. Um, we haven't had lots and lots of these things because we hadn't had the enable techno enabling technology to make it easy. Um, uh, the, uh, I'll give an, I was an advisor to Etsy in the early days of Etsy. And I remember that um, Rob Kalin, who's the founder of Etsy and real visionary around this stuff, um, he pitched me on it and he's like, hey, would you be an advisor to this company that I'm starting? It's an eBay for handmade goods. Um, and I was like, how big could that possibly be? <laughs> like, <laughs> and, and I'm like, sure, Rob, I'll, I'll help you. Um, and But Rob had the vision that basically kind of things that exist offline, um, once you make it easier for people to do them, um, more people will do them. And that's obvious. But what's less obvious is that that relationship is not linear. It's nonlinear. Many more people will do them. And so, um, so, and then that quantity ends up having a quality of its own. So Etsy is very different from flea markets. Um, and solely because it made it easier to do, basically. And so you can imagine... Uh, you can imagine many, many examples of Kurochiba um, that that work in local contexts that are interoperable with one another, um, 
because we now have the enabling technology to do that. It's an amazing story to close the show. Thank you, Seb. I know you've got to go. You've got a lot on your plate. It's been a real pleasure having this time with you and looking forward to when next we speak and hopefully we can hang out in person soon. Such a pleasure. And I'm happy to do this whenever you guys want. Amazing, Sam. Thank you so much. Thank you.